Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. Welcome back. This week we have a listener request. Like all the others, this one is an onion. Actually, this episode is a bowl of onions, so let's start peeling. This is a listener request from Lisa Marquez. She actually made the request for Eli Stutzman. Okay, I'm a big Investigation Discovery fan, and they have a six-part series on there called Murder in Amish Country. Eli Stutzman is actually one of the episodes that we will get to today. It prompted me to take it a step further and cover all six episodes of Murder in Amish Country. Don't worry, we're not going to cover all six today. We're going to make this like a two-part thing and cover the first three episodes. First episode is called Twisted Confession and the description of this is detectives fear what an Amish widower will do to get the woman he craves. Really sounds sinister but I totally forgot before we get into this my ever faithful companion evil is here. Say hello evil. Hey hey let's talk Amish murder. So without further ado a bit of backstory on this first episode. This is a story about Samuel Bontrager and Anna Yoder. They would be in the same Amish community, and when she was 21 years old, and that would be March 2nd, 2000, they got married. Over six years of marriage, they would end up having five kids. In 2006, Anna would become very ill. Her health wasn't improving, and her husband hired another lady named Mary Yoder. I don't think they were related. If they were related, I would have think they would have brought that up, so that wasn't brought up, so I think they just, same community. Community, same last name, no relation, if that's possible. Coinky dink, as we say. They hired Mary to help care for Anna because she had five kids and they were all pretty close back to back. And having five kids close like that and being Amish, I'm sure they probably didn't have epidurals. You know, she's going all natural on five kids. I'm sure she's not bouncing back right away. I thought for sure you're going to say workers around the house birthing your workforce. Well, the kids were all still very young. The show says, quote, Quote, Anna died suddenly on November 4th, 2006. It was determined that she passed away from natural causes, and everyone in the community was under the impression that she had passed away from liver failure because for months leading up to her death, she was getting progressively ill. I kind of, you know, was reading that, but I wanted to know more about her being ill and not getting better. So I found one article. Ah, just live her alone. I found one article that said, quote, Anna had first been diagnosed with liver problems, but family and friends had suggested she get a second opinion. The episode also details she went to a regular hospital, but what that visit was about will be discovered later in the investigation. But mentioning this hospital visit solidifies that she did have a liver diagnosis from a real doctor at a real hospital. (laughs) Not that make-believe shit. No, it's not make-believe, but like, for them, they will go to a hospital, but it's not the first place they're running. If they can have it handled by their local chiropractor, who is also Amish, they will go kind of a holistic route before they go to a hospital. I'd love to go to an Amish chiropractor. 
I know that about them being able to go to a doctor because I read in Ohio's Amish country, the health of the Amish is what the article was called. It says the Amish religion does not restrict people from seeking modern medical care. For the most part, Amish use local doctors and dentists and will go to a specialist in hospitals as determined. So it's not a no-no for them. Then the show says that Anna had a lot of health issues. Josh Erickson, who is the sheriff of the area, he he said that she supposedly had a lot of health problems. Either way, she was ill and it resulted in her death, which was determined to be natural liver failure from her long illness. So towards the end of the illness and right before her death, her husband is getting kind of sweet on Mary the caretaker and they do have a relationship that begins. Not long after Anna passes away, he is married to Mary Yoder. 12 minutes later. Yeah, they, they married April 22nd, 2007, and she died December 4th, 2006. So from December 4th to... Four months. Yeah, like, wow. <gasps> well, after they get married, they up and moved to Kentucky, and they went on to have five kids of their own. Well, this all seems kind of cut and dry from here on the surface, but the layers of this onion are only starting to peel back. Let's fast forward to January 10th, 2016, Harrison County, Missouri, Sheriff Josh Eckerson, he gets a call from one of his deputies saying that Samuel Bontrager just came into the station and wants to confess to murder. He wants to confess to poisoning his wife, Anna, in 2006. So January 11th, next day, Samuel is brought into the station to speak to local law enforcement. This episode plays the police interrogation, and I wrote this down word for word. Before I begin, I would like to add the tone to this, that he was not upset. He was not crying. He didn't seem despondent, anything like that. He is saying all of this as if he's telling an entertaining anecdote. So he starts, I'm serious. Like I'm listening to this and he's like, this is so fucking casual. Like he's ordering lunch. Oh, I'm picturing like he's trying to like, he's working it up to like a punchline. Oh no. But he's the only one laughing about it. He's like, I am here voluntarily. I've got this burden and I want to get rid of it. The police say, tell me why you're here. Why I'm here is I killed my wife. I poisoned her. Police. So you're saying you poisoned her. How did you poison her? He comes back with antifreeze and battery acid. <laughs> I put antifreeze in her drink. Police. Was she coherent and talking then? At this point, he comes back with, yes, she did. She was still. Police say, she didn't ask you to do this? He's like, no, she didn't ask me to do that. No. Police ask, were you expecting the antifreeze to do the job, basically? This is where he kind of gets uh, even more casual. He goes, yeah, that's what I was thinking then. And just, you know, get her out of her misery, I guess. Quicker. <laughs> You'd think that'd work, right? Police. How long after that was the battery acid? He comes... Oh, it was... Po I thought he was mixing the two things. Like, oh, I no. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> That's hardcore. So we have quite a few things being given to this woman, and it's not all mixed together. But anyway... Okay. How long after was the battery acid? He says, maybe a day or two. I know I put her in pain. That's not enough time police and all of this happened in a two-week time frame he says yeah now why i got an idea like that i don't know the devil hit me 
<laughs> that was the end of the interrogation segment that they showed there. They show more later, but I will be getting into that later. So since her death appeared natural at the time, there was absolutely no evidence collected. There was no witnesses to any of this, and police and prosecutors are uncertain of the condition of Anna's body, and if they can even gather any forensics to corroborate his confession, because in the state of Missouri, a confession alone is not enough to convict. You have to have some kind of evidence or forensics behind it because I mean anybody can just be coming in and yeah I killed so and so and then we got a bunch of weirdly wrongly convicted people who were confessing to shit they didn't do. I mean I get that but that's still a weird concept to me like yeah I'm just gonna go in. I didn't do it but I'm gonna say I did it. Uh, you know what it happens quite a bit especially when a famous person gets killed there's lots of people yeah I did it I shot him and it's like why are you lining up for this but it's that's all I've got. So now the investigation is looking for the motive. So they try to question folks within the community, but the Amish community, they like to handle a lot of things themselves. They keep things private. They're not talking to police right away. Like the mafia. Yeah. So we handle our own business. Starting at the top of their hierarchy, police talk to the elders and the bishops first, but that got them nowhere, so they start looking through Anna's death records to see if there is something that might have been overlooked. They see that she died of liver failure, however, that goes against what Samuel said. He said he gave her antifreeze, and that would have destroyed her kidneys instead of her liver. An exhumation of the body is not allowed by the Amish community because they feel it is an act of desecration. But police end up convincing the elders to let them further test to see if she had been poisoned. The bishop reluctantly agrees, but they kind of went in like, hey, you know, we're going to have the utmost care for her. We're going to make sure we get what we need without damaging the body. We're going to rebury her in another respectful service. So they went in with some cards on the table to get this exhumation done. He gives them the permission to do this because he felt it was necessary to solve the case, which it is true. So Anna's body was exhumed. Unfortunately, nothing was found. This stalemate the investigation and there's no physical evidence to back up this confession and there doesn't seem to be a motive at this point until months later Samuel's brother Eli Born Traeger decides to call police which they can use a phone but they cannot own a phone he's feeling guilty for not saying anything sooner and now he's ready to talk he tells police the opposite of how everyone else described their marriage and home life because everybody's like everything was great you know, everything was turning up roses. Eli's like, nope. <laughs> nope, somebody was pushing up roses. So you ask anyone, and they all thought everything was good, but Eli tells them that she had five children pretty much back-to-back -back and was still expected by him to take care of all of her duties, like the cooking and cleaning, all of the child care. Might I add, her last child was a C-section, and she just wasn't recuperating as fast as he wanted her, so that's when he decided hiring Mary would be the best to help keep up around the house and shit. Feelings started to develop between Mary and Sam, and it's not long after they are brought in in front of the bishops and faced with the consequences of their infidelity. Mary was sent to an order in Indiana, and Sam was excommunicated for three months. He did his time excommunicated from the community. He returns, and right after, like Anna dies just weeks after. Eli goes on to tell that two weeks before Anna died, Sam ended up 
proposing to Mary. And Mary was three, four weeks pregnant before they even got married. So you know he was cheating, which is a no-no. Anyway, the motive is starting to reveal itself. Like the layers of the onion, we peel it back. And they are beginning to wonder if Mary had a part in this. So Mary is brought in for questioning and she claims that she was in love with Sam, but she knew nothing about Anna being murdered. They also uncover that Anna was seeing a chiropractor to help her feel better. From all these visits, Samuel decides to get into doing chiropractic treatments on other women in the community. And he's using like straps around their hands and feet and pulling and stretching these women. <laughs> he's even actually gone on to like hurt some of them and pulled them so much that like their dress is torn. This is the ruse? Yes. I, like, it sounds like a ruse. Like, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I've been to the chiropractor many times. I've never seen the leather straps broke out. I'm like, well, I've not had an Amish chiropractic work done. Well, it, it, leather straps, we're going to add to that. He also said he had a quote. <laughs> I can't even. Okay, he had a quote, special ointment. <laughs> that What? <laughs> I don't want no special ointment. Okay, so that he would rub on their breasts. Many women in the community came forward to corroborate that story. It's semen. I don't know what it was, but it was what it was you, probably just Vaseline. You think that was? <laughs> Outsiders Vaseline. I call it my special ointment. Mary's brother tells police that he knows Sam duped Mary into marrying him. He told her, oh, this is how he started having sex with Mary, but he told her that her uterus was out of place and that he knew how to correct her problem. These are excellent pickup lines. I mean, I guess this is how you pick up chicks in the Amish community. Noted. Well, during the investigation, it's discovered that Anna was treated in a regular hospital, like I said. The hospital report details that before the antifreeze and the battery acid, he was giving her large amounts of Tylenol, which was causing her liver problem. So however much the Tylenol was hurting her, the method was only making her sick and not killing her. And that's when he upped his game to just slipping her antifreeze. I think that was his light, lazy attempt number one. I was like, I'm just going to give her a shitload of Tylenol. But you got to think about, this is like pure living. These people live off the land. They don't really take medicine. So for her to be getting copious amounts of Tylenol, obviously he gave her enough to fuck her liver up. I mean, it sounds like... like she's got a diagnosis. It, it sounds like the first failed attempt of a guy who would call Vaseline his special ointment. I watch Forensic Files, like I've mentioned before, and... <laughs> Brush your teeth to that shit. I do. I saw an episode, because there's so many incidences that have happened, with antifreeze being slipped to people or animals or kids getting into it, they started putting in a bittering agent. So poisoning her tea, that was easy to do because antifreeze was still sweet at the time. Bittering antifreeze legislation was just in its infancy at the time of her death. The Antifreeze Bittering Act of 2005 had just gotten underway, and this was to safeguard children and small pets. They didn't get to that to 2005? This is like the earliest I found where we talk about making antifreeze unpalatable is what they called it. Gee, I remember antifreeze being a thing in like the 90s. Like it took that long? It had just gotten underway. The goal of this legislation was to make 
antifreeze unpalatable by adding a bittering agent called, I'm going to have to say this a little slowly, denatonium benzoate. At this time, it's only a small handful of states that was in on this early legislation, and the Bittering Act was only written in 2005. The legislative hearings didn't start until spring of 2006, so it's completely possible that she is drinking sweet antifreeze in her sweet tea. Police confront Sam with the hospital report and it's proof that she had been intentionally drugged. Samuel then retracts his initial statement. He says that he didn't know what he was confessing to, nor was he aware of the consequences to that confession. He fucking lawyers up and starts pleading the fifth all of a sudden. Police then obtain some forensic experts that can conduct further testing, so they meet with the bishop again to have her body exhumed again. Police break it down that they need this evidence because Sam has recanted his confession. With the evidence, they can bring justice to Anna, but that requires many members of the community testifying in court. They really don't want to drag the community into this. They don't want to be part of the court system, but this can all be avoided should Sam plead guilty. The bishop then requests a meeting with Sam, and in this community, you may be doing shit behind people's back, but when the elders speak, you listen and you do what you're told. The police take the bishop to the county jail and the bishop tells him that he needs to be accountable for his actions and that this is making a hard time for his community. Well, the bishop's word must have had some effect because Samuel agrees to plead guilty to second degree murder. Now that he has agreed to do this, he has to now go into detail as to what really happened to Anna, like how he administered all of this. And as I said before, the Tylenol was only making her sick and slipping antifreeze into her sweet tea wasn't doing the job fast enough. That's when he brings in the battery acid. He then elaborates how he utilized the battery acid. This is where they start playing the confession again and I write it down word for word. So the police start off with, okay, you did the battery acid up her rectum? He says, yeah. And it, it, literally, yeah, <laughs> Y-A, yeah. Not, yes, sir. Yes, I did. <laughs> Not, yeah. Right. Yep. Police, how did you get, what? Did you use a syringe? Yeah. Afterwards, I got battery acid on my hand and I said, wow, how that burns. I'd done it multiple times. It had to be painful. End of the confession segment right there. So he ends up putting the battery acid up her rectum. He gets a little bit on his finger and he's like, wow, that shit burns, you know? <laughs> That's what I've been doing to people? Sources say, we're kind of getting into a little motive here, that he was bored with Anna and no longer loved her. And his faith didn't, they don't allow their members to get divorced. So he felt he had to kill her to be with Mary. And At, that's the method he settled on. Yeah. At the beginning of the episode, Sheriff Josh asked the question, why now? Why after 10 years? And he finally got to ask Samuel why. And this is some shit. He said that he wanted to become a minister, then eventually a bishop, and for him to achieve that goal, he must atone for his sins so he could be forgiven by God. He was sentenced to serve no less than 85% of 25 years, so either way, he's still looking at like 19 years for that heinous murder of this sweet Amish mom of five who was just trying to be a mom, trying to bake some pies and shit. 
because he was selfish, but somehow this logic of I can't get a divorce, but I can be forgiven of killing her. Seems like so much work, and I don't know how you would accomplish that. Battery acid syringe in the rectum, like. He did it while she was sleeping, and they did go on to say that her death was an agonizing death from that because how do you just how still how do you settle on that you can't look you're in an amish community you can't look around at shovels and axes and shit and be like nah no just whatever happened to smothering somebody with a pillow anything like how do you get to that point where you're like i'm gonna try this well that brings us to the end of the first case which is the case of the bontragers and poor anna that was uh well Moving on, now we're actually getting to Lisa's request, and she requested the Amish serial killer, Eli Stutzman. You thought that case was an onion? We've got multiple layers to this one, too. And Good name. Serial Amish killer named Eli. <laughs> yes, uh, the next guy is Eli, too, so we've got a lot of Eli's mm. and Yoders going on here. Well, this one, I don't want to read the description for this one because it contains spoilers. But it all goes down December 24th, 1985 in Thayer County, Nebraska, just outside of the town of Chester. So Chester resident Chuck Cleveland, he is on his way home from getting a haircut. He's looking out over the landscape for any pheasant because he's a local hunter. Off in the distance, he spots something blue. He says... Quote, I drove by slow and noticed there was something very blue in there. I thought, that's strange. I stopped and backed up and I looked again and I can see something blue over there. Something wasn't right. I thought someone was playing a terrible joke. It looked like a mannequin from a store or a big baby doll laying in the weeds. I looked a little closer and then it hit me. This was a child. End of quote. He gets back in his truck and he radios for help. Cleveland was the first one to call him Little Boy Blue because of his blue jammies that he was found in. There are no missing person reports that's matching up with the boy's description, so police make posters with a sketch composite to help drum up any leads as to who the boy is, and those were distributed to news, radio, just everything they kind of could at the time, and it even makes national news. Leads and calls are pouring in, but nothing pans out. The town held the funeral for the boy on Easter Sunday of 1986, that's like four months after the fact, in which much of the town was there. One article said that more than 500 mourners showed up to this funeral. He was laid to rest in Chester County. Local residents donated the burial plot, his little burial suit, the funeral flowers, the coffin, and his headstone. Sorry, I have a hard time when it's kids. Since no one has come forward with the identity of the boy, the town pastor named him Matthew, which means gift from God. That was the name that was put on his headstone. And there are little toys all around his headstone. As much as they wanted to give this sweet baby Matthew a proper burial, the investigators did have an ulterior motive to this funeral. They wanted to see if someone went out of the norm, maybe someone not a local, potentially a killer, would show up to the funeral, but that yielded no results. Just when it seems that this case is kind of going nowhere fast, the unlikeliest of things would take this onion of an investigation to the next layer. 
So author Henry Hurt published a story in the December 1987 Reader's Digest, a story called Little Boy Blue of Chester, Nebraska. Well, at this time, Reader's Digest was everywhere. It was so popular that they even made anthology books of collections of all these stories. Like you could get a Reader's Digest book of this date to this date, and it would just be, instead of a bunch of different magazines that came to your house, it's a hardcover book of all of these stories. That's how popular they were. Henry's story leads them to a viable tip. Shortly after the story comes out, a man from Ohio calls investigators to tell them that he believes Matthew is his neighbor's son, Danny Stutzman. He goes on to tell police that he's friends with his dad, Eli Stutzman, but he hasn't seen him in quite a long time. He also tells them that the family is Amish and was from Apple Creek, Ohio. Eli is from an Amish sect called the, I hope I say this right, Schwarzentruber Order. And this is a sect that broke away from the main Amish community because they felt the Amish community wasn't conservative enough for them. Jesus. So these people are even more conservative on top of conservative. Well, investigators travel to Apple Creek to talk to the community and question Eli. They meet with Danny's Amish grandparents and they give the police the July 1986 letter that Eli had written to them. Eli told his dad in the letter that Danny had passed away in a car accident in Utah. Police tells them that the dates aren't right because Danny was already been dead for quite some time at this point. Eli's secrets are starting to come out. Investigators find out that he is married to Ida Gingrich and they had Danny shortly afterwards. Nothing unusual there with, you know, just getting married, having kids. That's what the Amish people do. But they find out that he was fooling around with men and his wife knew about it. Like she apparently caught them fooling around in the barn. And homosexuality as well as divorce is a strict no-no forbidden in their religion. Shortly after she finds out, their barn catches fire. Eli tells police that lightning struck the barn and Ida ran in to get out as many milk pails as she could, but she became trapped and she died in the fire. Eli tells the coroner that Ida had heart problems and he was taken at his word, so no autopsy was done to her body that he managed to pull out of the fire. Ida's cause of death on record doesn't exactly jive with Eli's account of what happened with the fire and the coroner might have taken him at his word, but Ida's family is suspicious and those close to Ida never heard about her having no heart issues. It is speculated that Eli killed Ida because she was pregnant, five months pregnant, and many believe that Eli didn't want any more kids. Danny was just 10 months old when she died. The official records say that primary cause of death was acute cardiac arrest. The date on her death certificate, so this is all going down in July of 1977. So him being caught with men, their marriage falling apart, and the fire all happened within 1976-1977 time frame. Is there anything on the who he's hooking up with? Is it fellow people in that 
double conservative group or is this outsiders? Okay, from the look of when she caught him in the barn, it looked like he was with another Amish guy. I'm guessing there are a couple of closeted gentlemen in that community that were meeting up. I don't know how many he was fooling around with before. It just says that she had caught him. It's always the double conservative, super against gay stuff that's doing the most gay stuff. Well, another layer to this. To make things even stranger about Ida's death was that Eli had a meeting with an insurance agent the same day she died. Not only did he obtain more insurance, but he also had his and Ida's wills rewritten. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me like he just bought some barn insurance and arson fire insurance. No, he just upped some so he can get some money. He Bill Murrayed that shit from Groundhog Day. Now, with this information, police are beginning to wonder if Eli killed his son Danny because we're already at Danny's death. Now they're finding out his wife died suspiciously. We've got this guy linked to two fucking dead bodies. Plus, I don't get the car accident in Utah. Like He that, says it like, like as if the 10-month-old is like on his own on a road trip in Utah. Well, a few years after her death, Eli sells the farm. And with Danny, they leave the community because he was just kind of giving in to who he really was. And that's just not accepted. So he went English, as you could say, and wasn't going to stop hiding who he was. So they move away from Ohio. They head out to Colorado where Eli meets up with a man that answered his personal ad. Keep in mind, personal ads were how you met people back in the day. So out there, he's living it up. He's partying. He's having a good time. He's meeting all kinds of men. While he's in Colorado, two more suspicious deaths would happen around him. Now, the show didn't go into it. They said that he was just a suspect in it, but it wasn't really delved into any further. So I did find an article that the local gay community believed that he knew both of these men and that he is responsible for their deaths. There's no hard evidence that connects him to either one of these murders, but they take place November 10th, 1985. David Tyler was found dead in the back of a truck at a transmission shop that he was a co-owner of. And then, not even a month later, in December 5th, Dennis Slater was found shot and killed in the basement of Junction Creek Liquors where he worked. And the evidence lays out that the two knew each other and they were using drugs together. So now we've got a dead child, a dead wife who ran into a barn, We've got David and Dennis, so now we're up to four people at this point. Police are now looking into uh, looking for him in Colorado, but he has managed to be a step ahead, and he isn't found in Colorado. But police get another break from police in Austin, Texas, not Austin, Massachusetts. Not Boston, uh, Boston, Texas. Austin. Austin. Austin, Texas. That Eli has been part of a case down there. He is a suspect in a May 1985 murder case, and police are looking for him in Texas too. So weirdly enough, this victim, his name is Glenn Pritchett, was also found out in the country in a ditch, kind of like Danny, but he was shot in the head. 
Glenn had met Eli at a work site where they were both working on and he ends up living with Eli. So now Nebraska and Texas police are working together to find this guy. Nebraska police locate Eli, still in Texas, to question him about the death of Glenn. Eli tells police that he ain't seen Glenn in a couple months and he took him to a bus station in Austin so he could return to his family because he was homesick and that he even spoke to him at his family's house back in Montana. Well, police, they don't believe this shit, so they call Glenn's family and they say they have not seen nor heard from him. Police go back to question Eli and of course, him and Danny are not there. So going back to that letter that Danny's grandparents gave police, Eli was writing other letters, but he was writing them as Danny. He wrote them in a childlike handwriting talking about how he was doing good in school and he loves playing soccer and that he's very happy. He even had a little boy call some relatives pretending to be Danny. Keep in mind, Danny's dead, so he's got this kid calling fake grandma going, yeah, grandma, I love soccer. How does that how's that start up? Is he just hanging around playgrounds by close to a payphone and be like, hey, 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 come here, read the script. Give him five bucks and say, hi, Grandma, I love you, I love playing soccer, I gotta no. go. How, Kid earns five bucks. How was the day at the park today, Junior? I'm like, great, I got to pretend on the phone. Well, it's now December 1987, and Nebraska police get another address from some financial records. They immediately call Texas police, and of course, he ain't there. But the next day, they get a call-in tip telling them that he's staying in a hotel under the name of David Summers, and he's driving a blue truck. So police locate the truck at a mobile home. They call for backup, and the place is surrounded. He came out with his hands up, and he was immediately arrested. Nebraska police don't have enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Danny, but they do charge him with failure to report a death and abandoning a human body, which are both misdemeanors. Abandoning a body is a misdemeanor? Yeah, unfortunately. You'd think it'd be a felony for just, you know, leaving a dead body there. That's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, misdemeanor. They're like running a stop sign or something. Well, it's January 1988, and Eli is sentenced to 18 months in prison. Police and those who love Danny aren't sure if Eli killed Danny because he was cramping his playboy style or if he actually witnessed something like one of these murders. Maybe not the mother murder, but definitely Glenn Pritchett. I'm more banking on the cramping the lifestyle. I'm going to say both. He was, you know, wanting to have these freaky sex parties in his apartment fueled with drugs and alcohol, and he's got this fucking nine-year-old boy there. Well, Eli's cousin that the show interviewed, he said that he heard Eli left Danny on the side of the road because Danny was sick. He changed into his jammies while at a truck stop. He then went to sleep. Eli checks on him and he didn't respond and that's when he just stopped breathing. So Eli said he freaked out and left him where, quote, God could find him, end quote. He was then transported to Texas after his 18 months to face justice down there for murdering Glenn Pritchett. In August of 1989, he gets 40 years for the murder of Glenn. 
in 2005, which sounds like it's about 16 years later of 40 years, Eli is paroled from prison. And the ending of this story is on January 31st, 2007. Eli is found dead in his apartment in Fort Worth. He had committed suicide by using a sharp force to the left arm. Cocaine was found in his system. He was HIV positive and he was 56 years old. However, there will be no justice for the two that were killed in Colorado or the wife or really even Danny. I'm still hung up on the misdemeanor for just leaving a body. Right? You would think that would just, ugh, ugh. Why would you do that? I know why he did it, so God could find him. Well, he wasn't wrong there. It sure sounded like he got the best treatment post-death that he could. Well, we're going to kind of lighten this up a little with this last episode and this one is called the amish stud that's a wrestler the description of this one is detectives find a dark world where a deviant may have slain an amish wife yes there are spoilers in this description but i just still like the description when they talk about we're a deviant they wanted to say sexual deviant but they didn't this fucking pervert the last story took place they had somebody from apple creek ohio well this takes place in the Amish community of Apple Creek, Ohio as well. Just a different time frame. That happened back in like the 80s. This takes place a little more recent from now. It's in the 2009 time frame. But a little backstory before we get to that. This is the story of Barbara and Eli Weaver. And they have been married for 10 years. And they're part of an Amish sect called the Andy Weaver Church. This sect is described as the most strictly conservative of the regular Amish. Okay, we got to break here for a second because this is another group that found Amish people too, I guess, liberal. And it's like, what kind of people are finding the Amish that liberal that they're like, we got to get away from this. They're using buttons. We can't have this shit. Sexual deviance. That's who. They have regimented rules ranging from their hair length to barn color. They're being regimented as they are. They feel it's the only way to be right with God. It's like the homeowners association met with like the guys who run the quick trip hiring skills. What's quick trip got to do with this? I had a buddy that worked quick trip and he's like, can't have sideburns that go like so far around your, by your ear and shit. And I was like, really? You're that, they're that anal about at a gas station about you goddamn sideburns? Well, on June 2nd, 2009, 30 year old mother of six and wife Barbara Weaver is reported dead. She is discovered when one of her children tried to go wake her up and she didn't wake up. She is shot in her chest in her sleep with a 410 shotgun at point blank range. Robbery didn't appear to be the motive because they had cash throughout the house, which I'll get into the reason why they had cash. They had cash throughout the house and all that cash and everything was still there. They also had two guns and she wasn't shot with either one of those and they were both at the house. There is no forced entry into the house as well. Police turn their focus obviously to the husband. However, her husband Eli isn't in town. He is 70 miles away on a fishing trip. Fishing was part of his job because he operated a fishing and hunting equipment store and he would even go out on fishing trips with customers. Through this job, he would end up interacting with a lot of English people. He was described by a few as having one foot in the English world and one foot in the Amish world. 
police call one of the English members of the fishing group to inform Eli that he needed to return home because an incident had occurred at his house. He arrives four hours later. It doesn't take four hours to get 70 miles. Anyway. Depends on where you're, when and where. He's, first of all, I, they do specify this, but I didn't put this in here, but the guy he's with that has the cell phone has a car in which Amish people can be in a car. However, they cannot own or operate one. So they had a car. It's not like they're doing horse and buggy 70 miles back. He arrives four hours later to the sheriff's office. Police find it a bit odd that he isn't the least bit emotional about his wife being shot and killed in their home. But I guess everyone grieves differently. Sure. Without an attorney, he lets the police search his house and property. He tells police that he last saw his wife at 3.30 in the morning on the morning he left for his fishing trip at Lake Erie. He said that she got up to see him off and that everything was fine and normal. Even though he wasn't at the scene, people can verify his alibi because he does have a solid alibi. Police have a hunch that he ain't telling them the whole story. It's after hours of intensive questioning that he finally tells police, we were working on our marriage. He goes on to divulge that he had been cheating on Barbara and he had not one, but two different affairs, which is a no-no in their religion as well as homosexuality and divorce. So he, these people are just raking up the no-nos here. The first woman's name he drops is a woman named Dandy Ray Heasley. All one word or like Dandy middle name Ray? Middle name Ray. Really? Yes, Dandy Ray Heasley, who wasn't Amish, and the other affair was Barb Raber, and she's a Mennonite. Barb lives kind of close, and she's a married mother of three. They met when she was his driver to get places when they couldn't, when it took too long to take a buggy. They hit up their Mennonite friends and they get rides from them. Anyway, their affair was off and on again that spanned like 10 years. Police, of course, go over to Barb's house and she tells them that the affair has been over for quite some time and the day of Barbara's murder, yes, we have a Barb and a Barbara. Barbara's murdered, Barb is the cheater. The day of Barbara's murder, she was at home, and her husband says that she was at home and she didn't leave the house. The police next day question Dandy Ray. She tells police that they had been seeing each other recently and on a regular basis. They were even caught once in his store having sex on the floor. She also says that it was more than just sex for her, but that she loved him too. She also tells police that he has a cell phone and a laptop and that they met online. She tells them they met on a page called Moco Space, which is kind of like MySpace back in the day. She even pulls out her phone and brings up his profile, and his profile name is Amish Stud, and it has got a selfie of his ripped Amish chest, which wasn't- I was, I was picturing like he's got like a shovel or some shit, like in a pile of dirt, and like the overalls with one strap off, no undershirt. He is shirtless, but he's got, like, the beard and everything. I'm going to post visual aids, as I always do. 
I think you just need to these post one, and it's just this. These people, like, he's not all that good looking, but I guess in the Amish community, he's kind of a catch, and Barb Raber looks like his mom more than, you know, a, a lover, but we'll get into that. Police are realizing fast that Eli isn't the devout Amish man that he portrays himself to the community. They also uncover that he's been looking at porn and that he wants these pornographic acts done by his wife. Arrest him. Amish women don't do a lot of those things. You know, they're conservative, so I'm sure... I'm sure that they're very conservative with how they do things. And he was wanting non-conservative things. His wife's like, I don't want to do that nasty shit. Fuck off. Well, she didn't say fuck off, but she wasn't having no part of it. Dandy's interrogation takes a left turn when she tells them that he asked her once about helping him kill Barbara and if she knew anything about poison. He says, maybe you could come over and run her over with your car, kind of shit like that, he would say. He starts laughing as if he was joking, and she kind of took it as dark humor at first, too, but then she started having her doubts. They take a look at his Moco Space profile, and they noted that he has 141 female friends, and they go on to, like, say some of the names of these people. I didn't write any of them down, but there was, like, some ass too fat and 69 girls and shit like that, so... Straight up Amish-sounding women, I'm sure. No, he was wanting regular women. Oh, regular women. Yeah, he doesn't want... How are Amish women going to have profiles when they're not supposed to have phones? I mean, he's got one. Yeah, but he's... I can totally believe he's got... He's on the down low. There's totally, I'm sure, an underground fucking sex cult of Amish folk. All with these, like, the worst-sounding fucking names on Earth. Police spoke with numerous women on his friends list and discovered that he actually approached many of them about killing his wife, too. (laughs) Are you Cream Pie Delight 69? Have you been asked about homicide? From the Amish stud. Well, it's three days later after Barbara's murder that is the funeral. And police aren't getting much help from the community because we've discussed before that the community just likes to deal with things privately. And But murder? Sometimes there's just no way around that. They got to let the cops in to do their job. They show up at the funeral in hopes that someone will come forward or they kind of showed up to gain trust of the community, hoping somebody would come to them and be like, hey... I don't know if this means much, but I saw this one time. It is noted that many thought that he was faking being sad at the funeral. However, when he cried, there were no tears. Well, the police efforts of showing up at the funeral pay off because just three days after the funeral, the police get a call saying that not everyone was in attendance at her funeral. And the one name dropped is Barb Raber. Barb and her husband, Ed, were friends of the family and it just seemed odd that his friends weren't there at his time of need. So police decide to revisit Miss Barb and because she's looking even more suspicious now, they discovered that she has two cell phones, one for her and one for Eli. Police get the number and they subpoena the records right away. They see that there are conversations of Eli, he's talking all kinds of crazy shit. At one point, he's even talking about blowing up the house. When Barb asks, what about the children? He, this is like the direct quote is, well, you know, they're innocent. Yeah, so obviously he doesn't care about his children either. So like, well, they'll be with their mother. They're innocent. Let's just blow up the house. We can be together. They get to the day of the murder and there are texts about the murder. And I'm going to go back and forth. Barb says... 
I am so scared. What if I get caught? What if somebody blames me? Eli says, who would see you? And who would blame you? Barb comes back with, damn, Eli, I don't know if I can. It's too scary. Eli says, the bottom door is open. Barb comes back with, I just don't want to lose you. Under pressure from Eli, Barb enters the house and kills Barb. Police go back to Barb's house and arrest her for the murder. He wow. did like Barb 1 and Barb 2 that. Barb kill. I'm Barb now. <laughs> I mean, she is. While Barb is being arrested, the same time they're arresting Eli and his children are watching in total shock. So now it's June 10th. 2009 and Barb and Eli are both charged with aggravated murder. While in custody, Barb tells them what really went down that day. She said that she was there and that she just went there to scare her. She said she stood in the door and Barbara accidentally woke up. It scared Barb and the gun went off. She was scared that, holy shit, I just shot Barbara and she ran from the house. But police knew that was bullshit because they have the text messages. But even that aside, Barbara was shot at point blank rage. She wasn't shot from the door. So Barb Raber rolled up on her, put the gun to her chest and called it a day. Police then confront Eli with the text messages and he comes clean about everything. So he says. Barb is offered a deal to testify against Eli, but she refuses because she loves him. Barb isn't told, though, that Eli is offered the same deal and he took that shit. So on September 30th, 2009, Eli testifies against her for a lighter sentence and Barb gets 23 years to life for her part in the murder. And Eli, he gets 15 years to life for complicity to commit murder. And I did some looking to see where their current status is now. And as of April 2002, Eli is still in the prison at Grafton Correctional Institution in Ohio. However, he is eligible for parole in 2024. And so, so he was arrested. What was his charge again? Complicity to commit murder. So that he was not charged for his steadliness? No, they, you know, that probably would have got him in the gas chamber. And he already agreed to testify, so he's already off the hook. So, no, no, no studly charge. Barb is at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville, Ohio, and she will be eligible for parole in 2032. So, 10 years away from now. That leads us to another conclusion of Amish murders. We will be back in two weeks with the remaining three episodes, which they are pretty good as well. The last one, not necessarily Amish. It will be Mennonite, but Mennonite is like Amish light. So it's and, all the same thing. But does it have this? The next one we're going to have as awesome a names as this episode. We will just yeah. have to tune in two weeks from now to see what these three awesome titles of Amish crime and murder is all about. Multiple barbs, dandies. <laughs> so we will have visual aids of all these people if we can. I'll try to get everything I can together. You can find those on my pages at Instagram, Housewife of Horrors, Facebook, Housewife of Horrors. And uh, yes, so we will be back next week with the continuation of Murder in Amish Country. Lisa, thank you for your suggestion. If you do have a case you want me to review, get at me, drop me a line in my boxes. And that sounded nasty. That's okay. the, that's, yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening and all the support. And we'll be back in two weeks with another listener. No. Anyway, everybody, you guys stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Big hugs.